0: Tapping the Mapua Dofu Source Written and read to you by Andrew Leonard Published in The Cleaver and the Butterfly The year is 1911. The location is 10,000 Blessings Bridge just outside of Chengdu's North Gate. The page number of The Great Wave, a novel by Li Jiren, is 518. Two women are sitting in an empty restaurant. Mistress Gu is a traveler freshly arrived from the countryside. Mrs. Chun is the restaurant's lao banyang, the boss lady. With no customers to attend to, Mrs. Chun is keeping herself productive with piecework, knitting shoe soles while her infant child sleeps in a nearby cradle. Mistress Gu is curious. This is Chun's mapua dofu the legendary purveyor of Sichuan's iconic spicy tofu dish. The place is usually packed. Where is everyone? Mrs. Chun explains that recent civil disturbances have resulted in the closure of the city gates and a drastic drop in traffic on the main road north. The normal flow of porters hauling cooking oil, rice, and other sundries has slowed to a trickle. Previously, the carters and street peddlers always stopped for a quick drink and some food before delivering their goods, but now the few remaining haulers hurry by. As the boss lady reminisced about the restaurant's past, the word started to pour forth as if from a bubbling spring. Elder sister, she said, you are probably not aware of how our restaurant's stir-fried tofu dish became famous. Back then, my mother was the boss. The old lady had a great temperament. The porters and street peddlers loved to bring freshly purchased pieces of pork and beef with them into the restaurant so as to have something special to eat. They also brought fresh oil for frying. Mother understood that these were men who did strenuous labor all day, so they preferred food that was spicy, la, numbing, ma, salty, and piping hot. So my mother always made sure to add hot peppers and numbing peppercorns to the tofu for extra flavor. She never stinted on ingredients. If you brought things to add, she would cook them for you. Our main profits came from selling bowls of rice. Our stir-fried tofu dish became widely known. The restaurant's original name was Prosperous and Flourishing, but because my mother's face had many pockmarks, everyone stopped using that name and started calling us Pockmarked Chun's Dofu, as if we only sold tofu. My mother's reputation spread far and wide, And more and more people, some of whom were part of the refined literary class, began bringing in their own pieces of meat and asking Mrs. Chen to cook them. This made the regular customers laugh and got to be a little exasperating. For the past year, I've been working my way through The Great Wave, a sprawling war-and-peace-like historical novel with hundreds of characters and a labyrinth of subplots that all revolve around the story of how the Qing Dynasty's final unraveling began in Sichuan. I chose this book for my nightly Chinese study session after finding out it included a scene in which the author, Li Jiren, recounted the creation story of Mapua Dofu. Li Jiren's lasting fame is as a novelist, lauded as China's Zola for his literary commitment to naturalistic social realism. But he was also a journalist, translator, and restaurant owner, a gourmet with an encyclopedic grasp of the history of Sichuan cuisine, and, according to fellow expats who used to attend his dinner parties when he was a student in France in the 1920s, a pretty darn good cook in his own right. For an obsessive student of the politics and history of Sichuan cuisine, Reading Li Tiren in the original on Mapua Dofu was more than merely irresistible. It was mandatory. On that glorious night, when I finally reached the passage translated above, I dog eared the page, texted my children, and made a martini. Tomorrow, I thought I would bring a clear head to translating this scripture. Tomorrow, I would tap the source. My first bite of Mapua Dofu happened in the fall of 1984, on my first day in Taiwan. It was a revelation, a festival of sensory stimulation, an utterly unexpected moment of culinary transcendence. There was a lot going on. Contrasting textures, the crunch of minced water chestnuts and tree ear fungus, balancing the melt-in-your-mouth pliancy of Dofu, Blazing chili pepper heat, merged with the entirely strange, numbing buzz of Sichuan peppercorns. That mala combination that is one of the great contributions of Sichuanese civilization to the world. A profusion of garlic and ginger. A tidal wave of salt crashing in from multiple vectors. Fava bean paste, soy sauce, salted and fermented black beans. And the bedrock beneath it all ground pork, and rice. Complex, dramatic, overwhelming. As Ellen Schrecker, co-author of Mrs. Jiang's Sichuan Cookbook, wrote, Mapua Dofu seems to contain almost every taste there is. That such a frontal assault would appeal to me was a great surprise. Up until that moment, no one would have considered me an adventurous eater. In high school, I was notorious for being leery of exotic foods like pizza. I could not bear the thought of sullying the purity of french fries with ketchup. Sandwiches were just a bit too complicated. I can't even say that by the time I arrived in Taipei as a 22-year-old, that I was all that much of a fan of Chinese food. I started studying Mandarin because of my interest in Chinese history and fascination with the written language. Food was just fuel. That first meal in Taiwan grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and sternly informed me that my experience of Chinese culture would resonate at a much deeper level than mere intellectual curiosity. It would be primal. It would feed me. The original Chen's Mapua Dofu restaurant no longer exists. In 1947, a devastating flood wiped out the 10,000 Blessings Bridge and forced the relocation of the shops clustered between it and the North Gate. Several more changes of dress followed, with at least one installation graced by signage written in Li Jiren's own calligraphy. The restaurant survived as a family-run business for a few years after the Communist Revolution, but was eventually converted into a public-private partnership. Today. There are several chun Mapua Dofu restaurants scattered around Chengdu. When I visited the city in 2019, I ate at the restaurant closest to where the North Gate once stood. Afterwards, I walked along the river and tried to imagine what the city had looked like when its ancient walls still stood. In a newspaper column published in 1947, Li described chun's Mapua Dofu as a pure country-style restaurant but its location, just outside of the city wall, made it a nexus point joining rural purity with urban drama. In 1861, when the restaurant was founded, the North Gate was a major point of entry for the produce of the Chengdu Plain. Chun's tofu was manufactured in a shop next door to the restaurant. All the rest of the ingredients, the rice, the pork or beef, the scallions, garlic, Ginger, hot peppers, Sichuan pepper, water chestnuts, and tree ears, the soy sauce, fermented fava bean paste, and even the cooking oil were products of the Great Plain. The peddlers and haulers who trucked these ingredients from farm to metropolis were also, as the oft-repeated legend tells us, co-creators of the dish itself. The antiquity of this rural-urban transit is hard to fathom. A city named Chengdu has existed in the same location since at least the 4th century BC. Within current city limits, archaeological remains of the Jinsha culture date back to 1200 BC. The road north from Chuns Mapua Dofu is invested with enormous historical and logistical significance. It is, in fact, the road to Shu, immortalized by the poet Li Bai the road that the Tang emperor Xuanzong traveled when he fled on Lushan's devastating rebellion in the 8th century, the road the Qin dynasty's invading armies marched down nearly 2,400 years ago. The Qin correctly calculated that once proper irrigation facilities had been installed, they could leverage the bounty of the Chengdu plain to provide logistical support for their ensuing conquest of the rest of what eventually became called China. The road to Shu paved the way to a unified empire. And that would hardly be the last time that peasants laboring in the rice paddies of the Chengdu plain changed the world. When I reached the passage in the Great Wave, in which Li Jiren waxed lyrical on Mapo Dofu, I'd almost forgotten why I'd started the novel. I had long since become enthralled by Lee's ambitious attempt to integrate the rhythms and textures of daily life in Sichuan with the momentous events that led to the demise of the Qing. There was a lot going on. My head was full of newly acquired vocabulary pertaining to opium-smoking paraphernalia, railway economics, and the complexities of imperial bureaucracy. Lee Jiren's characters—Manchu officials and adulterous matriarchs and umbrella salesmen, secret society gowned brothers and revolutionaries and spicy dofu cooks— are all caught up in inexorable currents of imperialism and dynastic decline, knocked about by the ascendance of science and technology and nationalist and proto-feminist awakenings. The Great Wave is Lee's masterwork— the concluding volume to his River Trilogy. I was swept away. My nightly immersion became the high point of my pandemic-isolated day, my reward for nine to five hours spent chasing freelance dollars. As I progressed deeper into the novel, my research on Sichuan cuisine became an afterthought. I just wanted to know what would happen next. Reading the words Mapua Dofu woke me from my days like that first Blast of capsaicin burn that starts one's pores sweating and makes you reach for the nearest beverage. Oh right, this is what I was doing. This was my destination all along. After I finished my first stab at a translation of the scene, I pulled up a map of Sichuan on my computer. I wanted to see if I could follow the route that Mistress Gu had taken on her journey to the city. I contemplated the Chengdu Plain. And idly traced the northward transit of the road to Shu. I imagined myself making my way to the fabled Sword Gate Pass in the Daba Mountains that separates Sichuan from the Qin's ancestral home and the great Tang capital of Chang'an. I lingered over one place name, Guanghan. Why was that familiar? I searched my notes. The pieces snapped together. Every taste there is became contained. Guanghan County is an hour's drive north of Chengdu. In 1977, Guanghan's party secretary, a man named Chang Guangnan, went on an inspection tour of a local commune called Jinyu. The story is told in Dali Yang's Calamity and Reform in China, State, Rural Society, and Institutional Change Since the Great Leap Famine. Chang was surprised to find crops of one production team growing uniformly well, without the stark contrast between collective and private plots. His curiosity peaked. Chang queried the team leader about the team's success, but was met with equivocations. Only after repeated urging did the team leader confess that the team for three years had secretly contracted the land to three groups. Each group was responsible for supplying a specified amount to the collective and received the remainder. In this way, the enthusiasm of peasant households was raised. The Jinyu scheme inverted the traditional Maoist system for organizing agriculture. As per the status quo, peasants were allotted a fixed quota for themselves, but everything produced in excess of the quota had to be turned over to the government. In such a system, there was no positive relationship between how much you worked and how much you personally benefited, a fact that tended to depress the resolve of peasant households to engage in backbreaking labor. Under the new arrangement, which eventually became referred to as the household responsibility system, peasants finally had enough skin in the game to make hustling worth their while. Similar bottom-up experimentation at roughly the same time was also taking place in the province of Anhui, a region which, like Sichuan, experienced relatively greater hardship during the disastrous Great Leap Forward than other parts of China. Yang's thesis in Calamity is that the more devastating the Great Leap Forward famine was in a given region, the more likely local peasants were to buck Maoist orthodoxy and go their own way. For the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, the introduction of what seemed a lot like classic free market incentive structures into the Chinese countryside was highly controversial. But Chairman Mao died in 1976. In 1977, Sichuan's top official was Zhao Ziyang, a protege of Deng Xiaoping, himself a pragmatist and native of Sichuan who was poised to attend to the top of the CCP hierarchy in 1978. With Deng's support, Zhao endorsed the Jin Yu commune's approach and directed widespread deployment of the household responsibility model through Sichuan. Grain production started to boom. Over the next few years, the Chinese government promoted the Sichuan experience as a national model. And so began a 50-year economic boom, the most dramatic in human history. A boom that rewrote the rules of the global economy and ended China's century of humiliation. All roads lead to the road to Shu. In 1977, I was a 15-year-old practicing my disco moves to night fever and fending off any food item more weird than a hamburger. Seven years later, I was in Taipei, gobbling down spicy Sichuan food every chance I could get. Each week, I read the latest articles in the Far Eastern Economic Review reporting how economic growth in China, unlocked by the reforms pushed through by Deng and Zhao, who parlayed his success in Sichuan into the premiership of all China in 1980, was proceeding at mind-blowing speed. From the vantage point of Taiwan, where fast economic growth, combined with committed grassroots activism was transforming the country into a vibrant and thriving democracy right before my eyes, it seemed clear I had stumbled onto a cusp point in world history. All the so-called East Asian dragons—Taiwan, South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore—were booming if China, led by Deng, followed their arc. At the time... I did not connect my attraction to Sichuan cuisine to the niceties of agricultural form in mainland China. But nearly 40 years later, I was startled by a passage in Fuchsia Dunlop's master's thesis, Gastronomically Chinese, Culinary Identities and Chinese Modernity. After referencing a Sichuanese writer's use of a small Chengdu restaurant to, quote, illustrate the dynamism of the Sichuan economy, Dunlop made a provocative suggestion. It is tempting to suppose, she wrote, that this reputation for small-scale economic vibrancy played a part in the CCP's decision to make Sichuan the location for the first pioneering rural reforms. I'm not sure Dunlop's ascription of responsibility to a CCP decision gets the power dynamic quite right. If Dali Yang's account is correct, Sichuanese peasants decided on their own to pioneer rural reform, and the CCP, instead of standing in their way, encouraged them. But regardless, Dunlop's musing about the connection between the dynamic food economy of Chengdu and landmark agricultural reform sent my synapses firing. The energy I tasted in that first mouthful of Mapua tofu in 1984 was directly connected to the innovation and collective collaboration of the Chengdu food scene in the 1860s and to the experiments of the Jinyu commune peasants in the 1970s. Those peasants who grew the ingredients, and the laborers who hauled that produce to the big city, and the cooks who orchestrated a collective collaboration into Sichuan's signature dish, their grandchildren had unlocked the economic strength of a budding superpower. This was spicy stuff. If only Li Jiren could have lived to see it. Because in a way, the reestablishment of China as a major autonomous economic power in the world finishes the story he starts to tell in his River Trilogy. A country falling apart at the seams is now stitched back together. Railways were like a pair of scissors. Wherever the railways arrived, the territory would be lost. The Great Wave is about a great many things. But the driving force that propels the plot is the story of Sichuan's railway protection movement. Fully cognizant of the economic importance of railroads, eager to connect the hinterlands of Sichuan with the rest of China, and justly wary of foreign imperialist control, The gentry and emerging bourgeoisie classes of Sichuan raised, via a general stock offering, their own funds for the building of a railway link between the neighboring provinces of Sichuan and Hubei. But progress was slow, corruption and the dispersal of funds was rampant, and eventually the Qing government decided to nationalize the unfinished railroad and hand over construction operations to a French-British consortium. Just 16 years after a disastrous war that resulted in the ceding of Taiwan to Japan, and 11 years after the even more catastrophic denouement of the Boxer Uprising, the spectacle of the Qing court handing over Sichuan's railroad to foreigners was not well received. One gripe was financial. The stockholders were extremely concerned about proper compensation for their shares. But the larger issue, the issue that brought people into the streets was the existential question of China's survival. Over the last couple of decades, the great power scramble for concessions in China had, as the saying went, carved China up like a melon. Situated in the far southwest, Sichuan was relatively isolated from the imperialist land grab. But the loss of the railroad was a strong signal that the province's immunity was under Threat. The railway protection movement was started with the explicit goals of reversing the nationalization of the railroad and protecting stockholder investments. But as far as the general public was concerned, the movement quickly became a proxy for anger at Western imperialism, Qing incompetence, and the uncertain future of China. The ham handed efforts of the governor general, Zhao Arfeng, to quash the budding protests only exacerbated tensions. Students started boycotting their classes and merchants organized strikes. Disaster struck after Zhao arrested eight leaders of the Railway Protection Movement in August 1911. A spontaneous protest demanding their release ended in a massacre when, on Zhao's orders, government soldiers fired on unarmed civilians. The entire province promptly erupted in chaos. Let's return to Chun's Mapua Dofu restaurant empty of customers in the aftermath of massacre, general strike, and mayhem in the countryside. Mistress Gu's arrival is inseparable from this larger narrative. Gu is on a reconnaissance mission for her husband, a militia leader in a small town to the west of the city, who can't decide whether he should throw in with the rebels or back the government. It's too dangerous for him to visit the city personally, to suss out the situation, but Mistress Gu is able to slip into the city, without notice. One quiet restaurant in Chengdu in 1911. But so many epic threads lead from it. Revolution, imperialism, the global economy, the challenge of Western ideas about science and technology and constitutional limits on power, to Confucian orthodoxies. And indeed, the very end of imperial China. After government troops were diverted from Hubei, to exterminate the rebels in Sichuan, a window of opportunity opened for revolutionaries in Hubei's metropolitan complex of Wuhan. The ensuing Wuchang Uprising in October 1911 is generally credited as the beginning of the Xinhai Revolution that ended the Qing Dynasty. But if so, Sichuan's Railway Protection Movement was the trigger for the trigger. Sichuan's largesse created imperial China. Sichuan's frustrations ended imperial China. Sichuan agricultural reform helped return China to international prominence. It's an impressive track record. But what else could one expect from a region capable of birthing a dish as dramatic as Mapua Tofu? In their fascinating exploration of technology in rural China, Blockchain Chicken Farm, Xiaowei Wang observes that the dynamics of rural China are not isolated to China itself. Yet because of its geographic distance from the United States, it remains a kind of periphery. These rural peripheries, the edges of the world, hidden from view, enable our existence in cities. These areas produce everything from the cotton in the clothes we wear to the minerals that create the computers and data centers. They also produce the food we eat. It is impossible to disentangle the countryside from food. Food is at the core of the dynamic between the rural and the global. As humans, we eat to survive. And our appetite for food has carved new geographies and technologies into the world. Urbanite appetites, especially, have shifted rural economies, ecologies, and societies over the past three decades. I am here because looking at technology in rural China, writes Wang, in places that produce the technology we use, places that show how globally entangled we are with one another, allows me to confront the scarier question that technology poses. What does it mean to live, to be human, right now? Li Jiren and his characters were asking the same question a century ago. I am asking it of myself right now. Among other things, I wonder why I'm spending so much time reading a novel set in the 1930s by a man who died the year I was born. Our circumstances could hardly be further apart. But Wang's point is crucial. Our global entanglements with what might seem like the most remote peripheries are in fact deep and intimate and require clarity and ex- excavation. The descendants of the genu peasants who pioneered world-changing agricultural form now work in lithium battery factories whose products are linchpins for the global technology supply chain. Their appetite for pork is so great it affects the economics of swine waste disposal in North Carolina and the profits of soybean farms in Brazil. By understanding the socio-economic and historical conditions that have shaped Sichuan's peasantry for thousands of years, I can more fully grasp my own reality, my own privilege, my own journey. The road to Shu leads to my backyard scallion patch. Li Jiren's saga is relevant. I started my quest to write about Sichuan food and globalization because I thought it would be fun to write a set of stories that deconstructed my favorite Sichuan dishes in such a way as to elucidate the connections that bind us all together into one great tapestry. As a writer, my goal is always to collapse peripheries and find common ground for cross-cultural hybrid fusion, which it seems to me is exactly the essence of Mapua Dofu. The world is not a simple place declares Mapua Dofu. It is full of contradictions and contrasts and complexity. It can be overpowering, but properly constructed, it is also intoxicating. And if you understand Mapua Dofu, you can understand the world. Because Mapua Dofu doesn't just contain all tastes. It contains all stories. So of course, I would fall in love with it. At first, detonated taste bud. There was never any other choice.